Good morning Gateway Kids, we hope you are well and you've been enjoying the sunshine. It's just got better and better, hasn't it, as the week has gone on. And of course the week has got better as well. Sorry, I've got to mention it. Liverpool have been crowned Premier League champions. It's taken them a few years to get there again, but they've done it. And it's been exciting to watch, hasn't it? And as I reflect on their journey... It's made me think about how they've had to have firm foundations in place, how the players have had to listen and to learn from Jurgen Klopp and put their trust in him. And we've got to think about that in our Christian faith. We need to have firm foundations in place. We need to keep our eyes focused on God. We need to trust in him and know that he is at the centre of our lives. Over the last couple of weeks at Gateway Kids, we've been looking at doctrine and devotion. We've been thinking about what it looks like and what it means to be a Christian and how God puts people in place to help us to get there. Of course, church leaders, our Sunday school teachers and, of course, our parents. What does your devotion look like? Hopefully you're spending time daily as a family around the word of God. Well, over the last couple of weeks and months, I've spent quite a lot of time in my kitchen discovering new recipes and baking and cooking and enjoying what is around that I can learn about and discover new tastes as well. So this morning, I thought we could actually make a pizza and kind of look at it and think about how can we apply it to our lives. So, of course, number one is you need a recipe to follow, to read and follow those instructions. Number two, you need the ingredients. So for the ingredients here, we have a pizza base, we have tomato puree, we have cheese, and we have toppings, which for me is pepperoni. So as we get the pizza base, of course, that is the most important thing. Without that, the pizza is not gonna survive, is that you can't bring anything else together. And this is the same as having God at the center of our lives, is that he's the firm foundation, he's the first there, he's the most important thing that every day we turn to him. And we know that he never leaves us, He is always there. Then we get the tomato puree and we spread it all around. Make sure it's covering every bit because it's going to help build everything else and put it in place. And as we think about that, we can see as well God's word, how it's important we spend time together delving into the word of God, learning what God has in store for us and how we should live our lives and encourage one another. And then we get the cheese and we're sprinkling it all over the top of it to bring it together, to add taste and flavour to it. You know, allow the Holy Spirit to speak into your lives. Allow God's love to touch your life so that it penetrates, it touches your heart and makes a difference that you become more like Jesus. Then we get the toppings. The toppings are the final part of the pizza. Now for me, it's pepperoni, it's meat feast. Some people, and there's a debate, isn't there, on whether pineapple belongs on pizza. Mmm, it's a no for me, but if you like it, enjoy it. So as we add the pepperoni to it, it makes the pizza start to look attractive. And we're adding and we're adding and adding. And it looks tastier and tastier. And my question to you is, what do people see when they look at your life? Is it attractive? Do they see God's love shining out of it because you spent together learning the word of God, becoming more closer to him, having that real relationship with him? Do they see love, joy, peace, patience and the rest of the fruits of the spirit? Is it attractive? Can I encourage you this week is to spend time in the word, spend time being drawn closer to God Spend time as a family encouraging one another and enjoying God's presence. Over the next week, we're going to get to you a, a devotion and it's called the Big Scrumptious Faith-Filled Feast. And this is to do actually round a mealtime where we can delve into the word of God. You can encourage each other and you can think about how can I share God's love with my friends and my family as well. 
So my prayer is that, is that you'll delve more into the word of God. You'll, you'll become more like Jesus, that you'll have a fantastic week and you'll be blessed. And we look forward to seeing you soon. Bless you. Good morning. Welcome to our gathering here online as Gateway Church Wirral and those of you who have come from further afield you are most most welcome here. We'd love for you to engage with the chat. Please go ahead request prayer. We'd love to be praying with you this morning and respond in whatever way you would like to to God's love this morning. If you get the chance and you're new to us fill in our connection card We'd love to get some great resources to you, including a free book in this season to bless you in your prayer life. And we'd love to be able to journey some more with you, as with everybody who's a part of our church. Many of you will probably be asking in this season about the easing of lockdown and some of the announcements that have been made about what is and isn't going to be appropriate for churches going forward. We are, of course, planning and have been preparing uh, for this change in the season for some time. And so we're going to ask you to do one thing at the moment, and that is to make sure that we have your contact details, that we have your email, that you're signed up to our church prayer and notice line. The details are in the notes and in the chat and that you're following our social media. Because what we're going to be doing is we're going to be sending to everybody who's a part of our church a survey this week to understand where you're at, what's important to you, what you like to see going forward, how you're feeling about things, your needs and preferences, and all of these important things so that we can create the appropriate picture, the appropriate environment for us to be the church of Jesus, loving one another and loving our world as we go forward. Make sure you're connected well and look out for the details of that this week. This week as well is an important week for us as a church. Today is the day we're inviting you to contribute to our special COVID-19 appeal. Right now, you might want to open up on another device or in another tab the details of our giving. Go to gatewaywirral.com slash giving. gatewaywirral.com slash giving. You can give uh, via text or app or via bank transfer. All that we would ask is that you note this additional giving as COVID-19 appeal. A reminder, it's going into our family support fund to support the people of our church, into our community support fund to support the establishment of our new social supermarket, our food pantry, and for our homeless housing project. And a portion of it is going for our Elim Global Partners who are serving uh, people right around the world in this really tough time. We would invite you to give generously, to give sacrificially and to really make a difference in the lives of those in our church, our community and even around the world. We're going to be mentioning that at the close of our gathering. But right now, why don't we get to our feet? Why don't we worship God in song? Let's pray. Let's seek him. Let's enjoy this time together. God bless you. Let's worship God together. Because you are good, 
diving into the Word of God together again today, and it's Paul's letter to Titus in the second half of your New Testament that we're spending some time in today in chapter 2. And uh, if you've got your Bible with you, open it up, go ahead. If you've not, please, uh, there's a tab uh, right down there next to your chat, and you can find it there, I think, pretty easy. That'd be great. I'm going to read to you as we begin from Titus chapter 2, reading from the beginning says there, but, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behaviour, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Saviour. There's a lot in there, and some challenging things as well, and even perhaps some confusing things. So let's dig into it. Uh, Realise, recognise, notice that right at the beginning there, our, our reading, this passage of the Bible, it begins with a but. 
For Paul, who wrote this letter to Titus, he's just been cautioning about false teachers, about those who simply don't practice what they preach, and about those who preach what the Word of God doesn't allow for, it doesn't hold to. There's a, this is happening, but. This is being said, but. Have you ever found yourself in those kind of yes, but moments? I know I find myself in them quite often, sometimes when debating with others, having conversations with others, sometimes when I'm trying to teach my kids how they ought to be um, a part of a, a happy and healthy family and going on. You know, my lad Judah, he's got so much experience of the world, he thinks he knows everything. He's, he's a passionate young man. He's full of a desire for life. And so he's pretty certain that he knows enough and his gut is pretty solid. He can just go ahead and do things. Quite often you find yourself with, yes, but. In this fantastic weather, it's things like, yes, I know it's enticing to push your little sister into the paddling pool, but. Or, I know it seems like a fantastic idea to take your squirt gun and aim it at your auntie, but I, I, I can't honestly say that I'm, I disagree with him on that one. I think it's absolutely fantastic to squirt people. But uh, all the time, yes, but. And, and here, this is the kind of sense that we're getting. The culture says this, but. Even your own instincts may say this, but. There's a better way. There's a better way. And you know, it's all well and good for the Christians, for the church, to acknowledge the challenges of the culture around us or to point out the failures of others. But there must be a but. It's not simply good enough to say, mm, because our word here, but, it continues, but as for you. You see, your life counts. It counts not only in what you know, but in how you live. Your life, if you're in Christ as a Christian, it's always been countercultural to live the Jesus way. It's always been counter to a culture of self or counter to a culture of greed for some and lack for others. Counter to a culture which concentrates power in the hands of the few and often excludes. You know, we could go on. Here the Bible says, but as for you. Yes, it's about what we teach as a church, but how do our lives accord with this knowledge? Are, are our lives growing in Christ-likeness, in godliness? And there's a clear commandment here at the beginning, but as for you, teach. Uh, the main driving thought for what follows is to teach for Titus, teach the type of behavior that's consistent with sound doctrine. Now, what is sound doctrine? Well, that word sound, um, it's not that, you know, Paul was a scouser. Um, no, actually, the, the word there, it means healthy or whole. So in the Gospels, uh, one commentator, John Stott, he notes that this adjective, it occurs for, for instance, the woman who suffered from internal bleeding, who's made whole, she's made sound. The invalid at the pool of Bethesda or, or that man who was um, disabled from birth outside the temple in Jerusalem. After they have been healed, sound, whole, healed. And in the letters of the New Testament, of which Titus is one, that same sense of health and wholeness is applied to doctrine. It's belief and teaching that is wholesome and makes healthy and strong. Ask yourself, do you want to be spiritually whole and healthy? Well, ensure then that what you are believing is exclusively founded upon the Bible. And ensure that how you are living flows from God's word and flows toward God's glory. So the rest of this passage then, this what is to be taught, it works out what this means, the things which fit with the sound doctrine and what it means for specific people. We've got older men, older women, um, younger women, younger men, there's Titus himself and those who were struggling under the, the slavery of that culture and that time. Now, the structure of the text, it lays it out this way. So each group is instructed that they should conform their behavior to the same belief. There's one God. We, are, we might have loads of different lives that look lots of different ways. But that belief in God, that presence of his spirit in us ought to mean that wherever we are, whoever we are, however we're engaging with the world, we're still representing the same Christ. 
There's simply no stage of life, no age when you, you can't or you shouldn't seek to have your character and your conduct conform to that of Christ Jesus. In fact, there's no status or, or lack of status that gives you a free pass. Even there's no challenge or harm that means you can't aspire to look and live like Jesus. This is for everybody. Now, Paul particularly wants Titus as the elder, the pastor, to hold fast to the word that he is teaching that's there in verse 9. This teaching is that behavior ought to lead to godliness, working out the faith that we saw last week, or rather even the week before, verse 1 of chapter 1. Um, this working out of godliness, the knowledge of the truth that accords to godliness, that you're supposed to practice what you preach. Practice what you preach. It's a pretty common refrain, isn't it? It's a well-known kind of saying or a statement. And actually, it's a pretty charged idea at the moment, isn't it? When we have Scottish public health officials and English scientists having to resign from their roles over their failure to practice what they've preached about uh, the current coronavirus pandemic and lockdowns and social distancing. And of course, there's one rather notable example of someone who didn't resign over a seemingly similar scenario. Oh, we do love a good scandal, don't we? Uh, A fall guy. It's often the sacrifice that our culture demands, and, and yet it always fails to purge us as a society of our sins. It always fails to heal our brokenness, and, and these cycles perpetuate. Nobody can practice what they preach, and indeed, most people don't even know what they should be preaching, except for if we find ourselves in Christ. Could it be that the church could not only preach but practice something better, better call for the Christian. Look, everything that follows, the conduct becoming of all we believers is for a very particular purpose. We've noted that our behaviour flows from our belief in God. And, And we could add that our belief flows from the one we behold, the God that we're invited to worship and to honour and to know. And in this letter, to, to Titus, Paul notes two important results of this. In verse 8, the marketplace or even the battlefield of ideas is imagined. And our good conduct of Christians is so that, and I quote, an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. A spotless, beautiful church that, that, that isn't uh, to be laden with the charge of hypocrisy. That's, that's a goal here. Add to that the second part of verse 10, where it says that in everything we, you, me, may adorn the doctrine of God our Saviour. To adorn it. You know, our behaviour is intended to beautify the gospel, to make yet more palatable the nature and salvation of Jesus. What a promise, what a possibility that is. Work at this out with me in our current COVID moment, would you? Ask yourself, for instance, am I abiding not only by the letter, but also by the spirit of the law regarding lockdowns and social distancing? This is a a tough thing, but but we can adorn the gospel in these things. Uh, None of us have a biblical mandate to break the law. That's an absolute, let alone disregard the legitimate needs of our communities in this. And as we prepare to re-enter the church building together, and something we'll talk about more in the weeks to come, ask yourself, are you adding to the risk of others or are you reducing the risk for others? Are you preferring one another? This is a way of us beautifying, adorning the gospel through our behaviour. We either get to beautify it or there's the opposite. 1 Corinthians 8 and verse 12 says, Thus, sinning against your brothers or sisters and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. It's a hard charge, isn't it? To put it bluntly, will you be a blessing or a curse to those around you? 
There's some statistical analysis that's just released that shows for people under the age of 50, you're more likely to die from an accident or an injury in any typical year than you are from coronavirus. Those under the age of 25, you're more likely to die from flu or pneumonia. You might consider that then to be a free pass to loosen your behaviour or bend the rules. But ask yourself, does your privilege, the benefit of your younger age, for instance, which is merely an accident of of how you find yourself in history, does your privilege distort your behaviour? Or are you submitting yourself to the behaviour that adorns the gospel, that glorifies God? Moreover, Are you a blessing to the spread of the gospel? Or will you think nothing of spreading discord or confusion or or even spreading something deadly? As 1 Corinthians 9 and 19 points out, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. You know, there's much discussion about white privilege in Western culture and society at the moment, rightly so. And there's come a moment in our history uh, where we ought to be addressing systemic racial injustice and the pervasive sin of racial prejudice and hate. Privilege often distorts, strength often corrupts. But healthy doctrine, sound doctrine, ought to show itself in healthy behaviour. We ought to love one another at our own expense. The church ought to be without blemish. We ought to make the gospel look and sound even more beautiful, more beautifully compelling by how we treat one another. Let's think on these things as we worship God. Worthy of every song we could ever sing Worthy of all the praise we could ever bring Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe We live for you Jesus, the name above every other name Jesus, the only one who could ever say Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe We live for you Oh, we live for you Holy, there is no one like you There is none beside you Love. 
So how then might we go about practicing what we preach? What does it look like for the different people groups mentioned in what we read from the letter? The behavior that accords with sound doctrine is clearly approved, applied to five groups and to Titus himself. First up, older men. Now, there's no age bracket given here. So, you know, you can kind of determine whether you are in this in this one. But I think, truth be told, we know when we can no longer call ourselves fully young. Let's put it like that, shall we? Older men, the characteristics and the conduct listed here are all that older men in the faith should show. A dignified, steady, dependable, loving and warm character. That face of the church that is so winsome and and, and lovely. It's the image of that guy in the church, if you grew up in church, that, that you grew up calling uncle because, frankly, you'd be delighted if he really was your uncle. It's that kind of a, a dependable, loving and warm character. But as with all these groups... These attributes, these positive attributes, they can't just be taken for granted. They don't just come just because you got old, just because you added a year onto the next. Uh, They only come from an intentional life, a deep dive into the person of Jesus and his work in your life. The early church preacher, John Chrysostom, put it like this. He said, there are some failings which age has that youth has not. Some, indeed, it has in common with youth, but in addition, it has a slowness, a timidity, a forgetfulness, an insensibility and an irritability. What? I didn't say it. John Chrysostom said it. It wasn't wasn't me. Um, Look, a humble person realises that they have shortcomings. And the Bible is helpfully here pointing out possible blind spots and guiding us in grace. Go for it, older men. Go for it. Next up, older women. And there are a couple of negatives here to steer clear of. There are probably specifics of problems in the Crete that Titus was ministering in. There's the the slander and drinking too much, specific problems. Look, the question here is, what are your problems? What are your negative tendencies? Might not be these, but do the work of identifying them. And in Christian community, be held accountable for growing in Christ. That's why our transformed communities are so essential, especially in this season. And then there are lots of positives that follow. For older and for younger women that come next in verse 3, older ladies are to be reverent. This word, it actually means to have the the, the nature, the, the likeness of a priestess. That is to be somebody who practices the presence of God into the everyday world. What a promise, what a possibility. And so then, to pass godliness on. Into verse four, we're, we're told that older women are to teach the younger women. Erin and I, we were reading these verses the other night and instantly there was a certain Agnes from her home church back in Canada that sprung to mind and time after time that she would do exactly this, just gather together younger women and teach them in the ways of godliness and and even very practical things. Uh, Older women, go ahead and teach. There's your mandate from the Bible. I'm reinforcing it to you. Don't wait. Pass it on. Pass it on. And what are they to teach here in the Bible? The Bible says that they should teach the younger women to love. It's such a high goal 
fundamental, foundational for everything. Not, not here is love, a fleeting emotion. And it's not really talking about romance or, or eroticism. No, love is here described or taught as sacrifice and service, as duty and devotion. Let's clarify what this means because there may be some confusion as you read on through the verse. Again, Stott, he says this, it would not be legitimate to base on this word either a stay-at-home stereotype for all women or a prohibition of wives being also professional women. What is rather affirmed is that if a woman accepts the vocation of marriage and has a husband or children, she will love and not neglect them. J.B. Phillips' word, home lovers, sums up well what Paul has in mind. What he is opposing is not a wife's pursuit of a profession, but perhaps the, the habit of being idle and going about from house to house. Some of that indication there from the slander or the, the drinking, perhaps, that is in that culture at that time. Another commentator adds this. Some would read Titus 2, 3-5 to as if it says... Women should dedicate their whole lives to X, Y, and Z. But it actually says older women should train younger women in X, Y, and Z. The difference between these two statements is like the difference between saying, Connie should spend all day, every day in the water practicing swimming strokes and teach Connie how to swim. These verses, they're not restrictive. It's not that there aren't other facets to what it can mean to be a godly woman. Rather, they are descriptions of how the gospel is commended in these settings. The culture of that day was ready to pounce on all of those who would seem to neglect others for the sake of their beliefs. But the Bible here says that your beliefs should lead you to love one another more deeply, sacrificially, winsomely. Let me reference Marg Motzko here. The content, she says, of this training is basic. And so it might be inferred that some of the young women of Crete were perhaps negligent wives, mothers, or household managers, lacking in elementary virtues. Nevertheless, while the teaching is basic, it is also important, and it can, at least some of it, apply to more than just young women. For example, it is important for wives to love their husbands. It's also important for husbands to love their wives. Ephesians 5 verse 25 makes that plain. It's important for women to, to love their children. It's also important for men to love their children. Again, Ephesians 5 and verse 2. It's important for young women to be self-controlled and pure. It's also important for young men to be self-controlled and pure. So says 2 Timothy 2 and verse 22. It's important for women to be kind. It's important also for everyone to be kind. So says Colossians 3 and verse 12. It's important for wives to be submissive, meaning deferential, cooperative, supportive and loyal to their own husbands. It is also important for husbands to be submissive, deferential, cooperative, supportive and loyal to their wives. So makes plain 1 Peter 3 and verse 7 or Ephesians 5 and verse 21. These are important truths, aren't they, for all of us? And so, verse 6 to the young men. It's interesting that with all the discussion that comes before of how people should behave, when we come to young men, they're only given one thing, that is self-control. Is it possible that the Bible is here affirming that men, at least younger men, cannot multitask? Um, maybe, maybe there's something else going on here. Actually, self-control is a big work. It's the work of being sober-minded. It literally means being in your right mind. And to lack self-control is to be out of your mind, spiritually speaking. This has wonderful application for young men. You know, regards perhaps all those instincts that could run wild and so drag you to your destruction. The instincts or the appetites to indulge in anger or unhealthy ambition to indulge in drink or illegal drugs to indulge in coarse language or corrosive media intake to indulge in foolish arguments to indulge in sex outside the bounds that the Bible makes plain. We could go on. 
All of this would lead to destruction, but the way of self-control allows a young man's life to flourish, to flourish and so to provide the means of protection and of provision that it really should. It's a big ask. Like all the fruit of the Spirit, self-control can only rightly be the fruit of your life if you're well and truly rooted in the love and the way of Jesus. His way of self-sacrifice and his new life. Young men, all men, all of us, are you truly rooted in Jesus? Seven and eight, these verses then focus on one young man, specifically Titus. He's a young man, he's an elder, he's the pastor of this flock. And they continue our thinking from last week about what a young elder, a pastor should look like that they have this internal call from God. It's, it's evidenced and affirmed by the church, but it should be evident in the world as well. All these Christian virtues, all of our behavior, it's not just about in the church, it's outward, absolutely. What do we have overall? Teach the life that follows the healthy doctrine, the behavior that flows from the belief. These are the things that will speak the grace of God wondrously in our world. Jesus, you are where it all begins. 
Henry Ford, the man who popularised the, the motor car, of course, he, he once said, if I'd asked people what they wanted, they would simply have told me they needed a faster horse. It's a bit ridiculous, isn't it? From our perspective, that's what was going on in its day. Of course, posterity tells us that what was needed wasn't a faster horse. Now, we live in an era where we see the rapid advance of automated electric vehicles and even potential for drone deliveries of all those important things like, I don't know, KFC or something like that. This is kind of the world that we're living in. It's a bit of a human trait, though, isn't it? That's only punctured every once in a while. Humanity, when we're faced, particularly with our our failures, our, our deepest needs and longings, when we're faced with our brokenness, all too often we default to a belief that if we were to simply try a bit harder or learn a new skill or a new thing, or to to judge some people, punish, exclude the really bad ones, and somehow we'll be able to uh, get further or or faster or or into something new. Truth of the matter is, we're just trying to operate with a faster horse. But here, in our scripture readings today, as this chapter, chapter 2, draws to a close... Here comes the real hope for humanity and it's our real hope as Christians and our real motivation and our ability to change. I'm just going to read these last verses from verse 11 of our chapter this morning. So beautiful. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. It's truly beautiful, rich and wonderful, this passage. They are wonderful and beautiful because something remarkable is happening here. Something remarkable has appeared, the grace of God. In fact, someone remarkable has appeared, Jesus Christ himself. And he comes, he appears. It's like the sun rising on a new day. That's what the word appears means here in the scriptures. It's an epiphany. One moment he's, he's not there, the next moment he is. After perhaps those who understood in the, the years, times before the coming of Christ, maybe they anticipated something, maybe even a someone, but his coming into our world is still remarkable. It is a remarkable illumination, a remarkable transformation from darkness to light. As Isaiah foresaw, we read these words in chapter 9 and verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. It's that kind of radical transformation. And so, because this light has come, because Christ has come, we need not walk in darkness anymore. We can know his light shining on us and in us. We can live and walk. We can love and work in the fullness and the warmth of that light. So what has the light of Christ accomplished? Well, the scriptures here teaches that he gave himself. This is his free gift. And he redeems us. He buys us from the slavery to lawlessness, from the slavery to sin. He makes us pure. That's good news, isn't it? And he makes us his own. He transforms our desires and our longings away from that which tends toward destruction and toward goodness. Wow, what a wonder work the coming of the grace of God. What a wonder work the coming of Jesus does for us. And we notice this, that in these verses, that the grace of God appears for all people. And what's being told about here, that salvation, the salvation of God is for everybody but that not necessarily everybody is going to receive it and welcome it. 
There's a need for those who see the light of Jesus to welcome that light, to live according to the way of Jesus. So there's a tension here. God brings salvation available to all people. But we know the end result is that he's going to redeem a, a, a people for his own possession from all people. That's what verse 14 tells us. I want to ask you today, do you want to be part of God's people? It is for everybody, but you've got to welcome this work. Do you want to be part of God's people? Come on, if you know that you are, well then for your loved ones, for those around you, do you want them to be a part of God's people? Something needs to be done here. Jesus has done so much. And his appearing, his salvation, enables us to do so much. Again, the scriptures here teach us that we can, because of him, we can renounce ungodliness. We can live with self-control. We can be godly, even holy. And all of this enables us to be the kind of people who really speak to his goodness. What a witness to him for those that we love. All of this is happening because of what he's done. And here the scriptures teach us it's happening in anticipation of what he is going to do. He's coming again. He appeared once. That's what verse 11 tells us. We know that that's true. And so in verse 14, when it says he will appear again, we know that that's true as well. We live in the light of his once appearing and in the, in the anticipation of the light of his forthcoming appearing in some Christ appeared to teach us how to live godly lives before he appears again. When his grace appeared, he has trained us so that we can wait for his coming again. We should live lives that are consistent with our doctrine, that sound teaching, because Christ appeared to make us holy and he is coming again. Now, this has been described as supreme capacity, what he has done. It's everything you need, everything I need. And it's supreme motivation. He's coming again. It's everything we could possibly desire or want. We have everything we need and we're looking ahead to everything we could possibly want. This is our why. This is how we live in the light of Christ. So here we are. What did the Bible say? Where are we? We're in this present age and we're waiting. We're waiting for that blessed hope. You know, I suspect there's a lot of us here today and, you know, we've, we've learned a thing or two about waiting, anticipation, um, longing for uh, something to change, for this season to draw to a close. Uh, this season, it's taught us about waiting. Maybe it still is teaching us about that. Well, one final thought. To wait, at least in the Bible, it isn't a passive experience. No, it's not like you've put in your McDonald's order for delivery like you can now and you're waiting those um, short four hours or two days or however long it takes to arrive and there's nothing you can do about it. No, it's not that kind of thing at all. Waiting in the Bible is eager anticipation. It's the preparations of longing. It's the image of a, a bride preparing for a wedding day. It's that kind of a, an anticipation that drives an action. It's us knowing that no matter the darkness of the night, the sun will rise. Jesus is coming again. And so we wait in eager anticipation. So, as verse 14 says, we are zealous, passionate about good works, always asking the Lord how we should live, what we can do, how we can pray. He's coming. Can you feel it? It's tension, certainly, but there's joy upon the horizon. Can you see it? Can you perceive it? All of his goodness flooding every desperate crack of this world's brokenness with his warmth, with newness. Christian, eagerly anticipate him. If you're here and you're just coming to know Jesus, then, oh, welcome, welcome his light. He's come and he's coming again. Lost, but now.
to a close in our gathering this morning I've got two invitations for you and two challenges in fact the same the first is to say it's great to talk about behaviour that flows from belief but the question is what do you believe for the Christian our belief flows from who we have beheld from the one that we have seen in his beauty and his goodness and his grace to us we see Jesus and he changes our lives. He changes what we believe, how we behave. The question, the invitation, the challenge is, how about you? This morning, I hope that you've seen something of Jesus. But if you want to see more, know more, follow more, have your life changed by his grace, then please respond right now. We would love to pray with you and help you begin that journey of new life with Christ Jesus. He loves you. Would you come to him this morning? My second question, my second challenge is regarding our behaviour as Christians. You've heard already, but I'm going to make it plain again. You, we, me, we have this invitation today to invest ourselves, to invest ourselves financially in supporting those who are in need around us and who are going to be in need in the days, weeks and months ahead. I would urge you, encourage you to give appropriately, to give generously um, at this moment and to consider then also how you can invest yourself. I'm so pleased to have heard from many of you about volunteering for our social supermarket, interest in helping the homeless. If that's you this morning, just get in touch. Message us, email us, send us uh, info via the prayer line. We would love to help you to connect in these ways. We want to be people 
who practice what we preach. God bless you as you invest yourself in these things. Amen.